discussion on historical practicality and historical accuracy, an interview with Scott Metcalf, the director of Blue Heron Renaissance Choir, and a composer profile on Johannes Ockegem. This is Early Music Monday. was doing my undergrad, well, even my master's, you know, I was learning, I was growing, I thought I was becoming smarter and more awesome at conducting choirs, and I thought I knew a lot, and except for in the realm of early music, I thought like early music was this like sacred cow that you don't touch unless you're going to be a musicologist slash conductor, and and all the conductors of early music groups knew everything about all early music. And they were all experts. And it took years to get there. And so performing early music was really scary because you have to be really accurate. You have to do it exactly the way early musicologists tell you to. Otherwise, you're ruining early music. Um, But the more I've learned, the more I realize that that's not necessarily the case at all. More than anything, as I've talked to musicologists, and you'll hear in our interview later with Scott Metcalf, and even me myself, who I'm definitely no expert, but I'm slightly higher on the early music nerdy scale than I think the average conductor I just get really excited when people do early music on their program. I don't even care how they do it. I'm like, hey, they're doing dead people. Sweet. And I just get really excited about it. So I think that's kind of where I want to start, is finding a way to shift that paradigm from whenever we perform early music, we have to be 100% historically accurate, otherwise we're offending someone, and shifting that into... How can we be really practical and pragmatic with this piece of early music that we want to do or with our ensemble that we really want to do some historical music with? Because in this first part of the discussion, you'll see that early music composers didn't have early music. They were just as practical and pragmatic as we are. Even when we think of Bach, his choir was not that good at his church. But the boy sopranos and stuff, that they was, it wasn't that excellent of a choir, but he wrote it for them for the forces he had. Let's say there was a church that had only three basses in the choir. Well, it wouldn't write very much bass for that piece or for that cathedral's music. They, they worked with what they had just as much as we do. And I think once I kind of made that switch in my head, even though I'm not necessarily someone who shies away from dead composers, there is a little bit of that weight lifted off of, okay, I have this many students in my class, so or my choir, or my choir has this many forces, so 
I can adjust this, or I gotta pick a different piece, or I can just have the piano play the continuo part or the 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 bass and tenor part because I don't have men who can sing that. Really want to do this piece? I'll have a piano accompany us and play those parts, and the the ladies will sing the soprano and alto part. Whatever the case may be, we'll go into some of those particulars in just a minute, but that frees up and opens up a world of possibilities. For example, Johannes Achigem. We'll get into more of the details about Achigem in our composer profile, but this story illustrates the point of practicality. Now, it's from the perspective of composers being practical with the ensembles that they had, and we're kind of trying to... (laughs) do it in reverse, be practical where ensembles trying to be practical with the composers that we have, so to speak. So, again, in the Renaissance time, you wrote for the church or the court or both. So Akagam was writing for, he wrote music for the court for King Louis VI, now, there's this one piece in particular, Misa for Suleiman, and he wrote it to be performed at the royal chapel, the court of King Louis. We don't know if it was commissioned by King Louis or someone else in the court. It's a parody mass based off of a chanson, which means one of the secular songs that Akigem himself wrote. He took that melody and based the musical material in the mass off of that uh, secular melody, like the Beatles taking one of their songs and putting it into a mass. I don't know why the Beatles always come to mind first. <laughs> Taylor Swift, you pick anybody. Um, we don't know if King Louis particularly loved that chanson or something, or if he just wanted good music. We don't really know, but there's the nature of composers and their patrons was such that that kind of thing happened all the time. And so the Kyrie, the first movement, is for S-A-A-T-B in our modern voice writing. Was that because those are the types of voices they had at the chapel, or what other reason? And people were just as practical in the Renaissance as they are today. So to think that, you know, if, okay, well, this piece was written and it was for lute, so we have to hire a lute player to come with a lute, and I mean, that would be awesome. And as much as we can do that, I think that's a really good idea because it kind of pays tribute and homage and keeps the music alive. But if we can't do that, we shouldn't just let that music die regardless to find a way to keep it alive with the forces that we have. So my advanced women's chorus when I was teaching at Spanish Fork Junior High, we did... And I cannot remember, and I didn't write it down, and I can't find the program. I, I've looked everywhere 
but we did a Thomas Morley Madrigal type piece. Well, it was a, it was an air, I think. And it was for two parts with lute and this like really mournful, dramatic, poor me song, which ninth grade girls can relate to because it's like how they live their lives of just drama all the time. And, and we sang it and I just had it played on the piano for, for rehearsal. And then during the concert, I actually had a nice electronic, like big electronic keyboard with a harpsichord setting. And I had it played on the harpsichord. Is that how it was performed back then? Most definitely not. But it gives some kind of historical flair to a junior high concert that's performed in a cafeteria, you know. And it worked really well, and they loved it. And it wasn't their favorite piece that semester, but it wasn't their least favorite either. And they really came to love it. And the audience really appreciated it, and it fit right in the middle of this set of contemporary pieces and added a really cool contrast and color to the program. And when the, the girls understood the historical background, they they kind of bought in even more so. But I wouldn't have just... If I, if I was worried about making it perfectly historically accurate, I would never have done that piece. Because who can afford a lute player? You know, it, it's difficult to to find early music players and to afford that. But again, that should not stop us. So, practicality. Don't be afraid to be practical with the forces that you have. If you have, going back to previous episodes when we talked about ensemble size, if you have a larger ensemble, what are some practical ways to think around it? Don't be afraid of imposter syndrome. I have imposter syndrome the very this very moment, this minute that I'm speaking right now. I have imposter syndrome saying, who am I to talk to choral conductors? Who am I to talk about early music? But, but it's okay. Everyone's cheering each other on because we're all trying to build up our art form. So when it comes to early music, just be like Nike. Just do it. All right, next we turn to our interview with Scott Metcalf, the director of Blue Heron Renaissance Choir. If you haven't heard of Blue Heron, I highly recommend looking them up. Um, We've talked about the Bird Ensemble being similar to the Talus Scholars and being an excellent choir. The Blue Heron is very similar in terms of specializing in Renaissance, you know, 15th through 17th century music, but there's a completely different emphasis in the Blue Heron and kind of uh, area of focus. So they've released recordings of the entirety of the Peterhouse Part Books, just like world premiere recordings of British composers like Hugh Astin and Robert Jones that were contemporaries of John Shepard and John Taverner, the generation kind of before William Byrd. And it's fantastic music. They won a gramophone award. They just released uh, last year a CD of Cipriano de Rore, 
his first book of madrigals, and it's amazing. So they have some really substantial recordings that are that have music that isn't recorded anywhere else, which is really fantastic and unique. So we turn now to our interview with Scott Metcalf, the director of the Blue Heron Renaissance Choir. Welcome, Scott Metcalf. Um, I'm delighted to have you for this interview. It's great to be able to talk to you and, and hear from your expertise. I am relatively new to the early music scene, so finding ensembles, particularly choral ensembles that have an emphasis in early music is something that I nerd out about and and I just love. So I'm really fangirling over here on the other side of the computer with a, a conductor that I, uh, I have a, you know, an altar built to, you know, so to speak, because I just love that early music passion that you have. So thank you so much for coming on. That's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I would love to hear just the story of how Blue Heron came to exist and how you came up with the name and and how you decided to focus on medieval or late medieval music, all the, all the things about Blue Heron and, and its uh, inception. Well, I am a violinist originally by trade and uh, I've spent most of my early career playing Baroque violin. Uh, that was my living for my main living for many, many years. Um, but in the nineties, I started getting involved with, uh, vocal ensembles, directing vocal ensembles. And that's something that had been a passion of mine all along. I mean, I, I like vocal music more than anything else. Yeah. And I think like many players, you know, singing and and vocal music, those are our models for how we want to make music. Mm. Um, plus, I'm really interested, I've always been really interested in languages and, and texts. So um, when the opportunities came up to get more involved with singers, I always uh, seized them. Yeah. Uh, and in the 90s, I, I had a group called the Cambridge Bach Ensemble, which was a, a group of eight singers in continuo, and we mostly did 17th century German sacred music. I mean, the idea was originally we were going to do Bach cantatas, and then, you know, the finances were just really challenging. You need a lot of people to do those, actually. You don't yeah. need so many singers, but you need a lot of instruments, and we just didn't really have the means. So we ended right. up doing... Um, mostly 17th century stuff. Um, and in those same years, I was also, I, I got asked to, if I would audition to uh, be the director of an amateur Renaissance choir here in Boston called Convivium Musicum. They're, they still, they're still around oh, awesome. um, and thriving. Yeah, they, oh, I was succeeded great. by Michael Barrett, who, oh. um, uh, another graduate of, of the doctoral program at, at BU. Um, yeah. And so he's, yeah, he's doing great things with them. And so that was my sort of introduction to Renaissance and medieval vocal ensemble music. Because violinists don't normally, you know, get right. that involved. Um, what do you think of when you think of medi uh, uh, violinists? <laughs> I mean, I was a violinist. So I, I, you know, I was early, definitely early music, but really involved in 17th century music and that seemed early to me and I yeah. just most violinists 
and I was among them to really, I knew almost nothing about music before 1600. Um, right. And I was a biology major as an undergrad. I never took a music survey class, so I didn't even really know. I wasn't that familiar with the composers. I had some vague idea, you know, about Dufay and right, right. Uh, Peritone. <laughs> There's <laughs> but, some guy named Palestrina, I think, or something. <laughs> really vague. Yeah. Uh, but when I got asked to audition, I got, I got this job directing Convivium, and uh, that was the occasion for me to sort of train myself in early repertoire. And so the programming for that, I mean, it was for them, but it was also for me. It was like, uh, it was sort of school in... Uh, Learning the day before. And, and, you know, yeah. Well, okay, what, you know, I read, I read the surveys. So, okay, we got to do, obviously we have to do Josquin. So we did Josquin yeah. the first concert. And then what do we get, you know, how do we proceed through these different important composers? And that, I just completely fell in love with the music. I, I felt like I this treasure chest yeah. open before me or or a palace of of repertoire with room after room after room after room of all this music that i had no idea existed yeah. um and to be working with singers was just the best ever so i'd been doing that for a while and at some point uh, i i was on a bus going home from harvard square out to where i lived in, in uh, watertown and i got on the bus and here's a another musician I know who's a, a singer sang at the Church of the Advent named Cheryl Ryder and she said oh I just I've just been listening to your recording with this Cambridge Bach ensemble and you yeah. know what are you doing these days and I said oh yeah that stuff but you know I'm really into 16th century music and at the moment I told her all about what I was doing and and I she got this sort of light in her eyes and so she and uh, Noel Bisson, who's an, another singer, um, they had tried to form a professional choir to do Renaissance music. Yeah. Which, and so they'd made some efforts. They hadn't really gone anywhere. Um, but, at, but at this point, um, I could, Cheryl and went to Noel and said, maybe we could, we could try this again. Let's ask Scott to direct. And so they, that, so the two of them and I, uh, put the group together at that point. So this was in 1999. Oh, awesome. What and a great, like, organic formation of this team. I was just pure awesome. right? Passion about it. That, that's great. Yeah. It was a combination of happenstance and just the right people in the right place. Yeah. So um, for our first programs, you know, I we thought we would do something English. Uh, Noel. Had writ, she's got a PhD in, in musicology from Harvard and she'd written her dissertation on the Eaton Choir book. Oh. So we thought we would do something, not actually start with Eaton, where that, that repertoire is just phenomenally difficult, right, but, right. Uh, but a little bit later. So I was poking around um, uh, file cabinets at the, at the Von Huna workshop in Brookline looking for repertoire and I, I found this piece by this guy, Hugh Aston, And Hugh Aston, I vaguely knew the name. I thought, you know, he's, there's a hornpipe by him. That's the only thing that people have ever really heard of. But right. here was a piece. It was a, a, a big uh, motet or an antiphon. Yeah. Um, five voices, S-A-T-T-B. And I thought, that's great. That's sort of what we want to do. And it looked really, looked wonderful. And I took it home and I read through it. And it just it was a completely enchanting piece. Wow. And, and then 
you know, so we did that on our first program as well as some t taverner mass. Um, mm. But we, ha I had also just by accident stumbled on this music from the Peterhouse part books, which is a set of part books that was copied for Canterbury Cathedral in 1540. And right. um, there are, there's 70-odd pieces, like 70 pieces in it, and about 50 of them are not complete. They're only in Peterhouse, and the tenor book is missing. Oh, so, wow. So a fifth of the uh, counter, counter panel texture is, is gone. It's gone. Wow. And treble part for some of them as well is missing. Like part, part of the treble book is gone. But what I had picked up was this edition by Nick Sandin where he reconstructed the, the missing music. And so brilliantly, I'm just, he's a complete genius. And he, he'd done his dissertation on this source in 1980, I think it was completed. So wow. he spent his whole uh, career is, uh, with these pieces and with this music yeah. and had, was writing, um, recomposing the missing parts for all of it. So Amazing. that, from the very beginning, we had this connection to this large repertoire of music that no one had sung for yeah. centuries because there was a part missing and no one had ever really taken it seriously. You can, this is the largest source of polyphony, sacred polyphony that survives in England from before the Reformation. And yet you can read standard histories and where it's, it's mentioned, if at all, as a sort of aside. Because right. with the music missing, no one's really been able to get a handle on it. And right. there are these marvelous composers. Sure. And um, and all of their music that survives is in Peterhouse and nowhere else. Oh, so, wow. And uh, because there's so much music that was destroyed from this period in England. Yeah. There are all these composers who were obviously extremely accomplished and wrote wonderful music. And we have almost nothing left of them. And perhaps all we have left is missing one-fifth or two-fifths of, right, of what they wrote. Yeah. Robert Jones, uh, John, uh, uh, John Mason, uh, Richard. So those two guys are only in Peterhouse, and there's oh, wow. a very just a very few pieces, but they're amazingly good composers, you know. So, yeah. so we started uh, exploring that repertoire right away, and pretty early on in the in the in the history of the group, I think we had this idea that we would try to record a bunch of it because no one had. Yeah. So that's like. Can you can make your mark really early and in a big way because that's such that has such significance to musicologists and choral artists and arrangers, people who make editions and publishers. I, I feel like there would be a lot of audience in different realms who would be interested in recordings like that. Yes, I think. I mean, that was sort of, that was our hope for sure. Plus yeah. the music is so wonderful right. uh, that there was just, uh, you know, there's a, 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 more than we could do in our, in our lives as, a, as an ensemble, unless we did it all the time. Right, exactly. Wear out our audience and, and our, you know, we want to do other music. Yeah, yeah of course. And we made a connection, a, a direct personal connection to Nick Sandin as well, quite early on. I wrote him very uh, shortly after that first concert and said, yeah. 
we've just done this wonderful piece that you reconstructed and we just yeah. love it and we're hoping to record some and this was you know that was 20 years ago more than 20 yeah. years ago. that's fantastic oh that's yeah. great and, and i think that and that whole era really of that early tudor england with john shepherd and taverner is it really is like this I don't know what there is about it, but it's really special that there's something really special going on at that time. So to find other composers that don't exist anywhere else, I feel yeah. like just this, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark moment kind of <laughs> Ark of the Covenant almost. Absolutely. And a really, a real one of the golden eras for, for vocal polyphony in a way. I mean, it's less familiar than the, the next generations. Right. Of, where it's bird and the later talus and which of, of course, wonderful, wonderful music, but you know, this earlier stuff, it's less systematically organized yeah. in England until the 1540s is really still musically medieval from a compositional right. standpoint. You know, they, they haven't gotten on board with this system of, of, uh, uh imitation which is organizing everything as a as an organizing principle and and little motives which we all do the same motive and we get through that and then we take another one and we explore that one you know that that system which had really had taken over in, on the continent long before 1540 in england it's later so this Peterhouse repertoire is still, it's very much um, operationally like the Eaton repertoire. There is imitation, but it doesn't structure things normally, and it's much looser. Right. And it's, but, and it's also interesting because if you go back to like Lano Power and that those English, real medieval, like the heart of the medieval England, they're doing those, that Faubourdone thirds. So, so it's almost like they started it earlier and then stayed in it later than the continent. That kind of, you know what I mean? That those thirds and the full triads, but not organized. Whereas then the continent wasn't into thirds as much and much more open sonorities and those um, isorhythms. And then they, they moved towards Joscan and this, really like imitative style and England's still just kind of doing their own thing. Yep. Yep. For, for decades afterwards, I mean, it's very interesting. I mean, of course this whole question of co continental English interchange and influence in this period is very, uh, not contested exactly, but we just don't really know that much about it. Right. There is, there is continental music in England. You know, there are Jacques sources in England, but not many. Right, and right. English music doesn't seem to have gotten to the continent in this period at all. I, right. I, I think it's partly, you know, the, the texts that they're using don't, are not operating anymore, or maybe the style is so alien, or I, I'm not, there are yeah. many, many reasons why there does not seem to have been a lot of influence back and forth. You know, we think, well, Akagem, his way of writing, mm -hmm his methods seem to be the kind of things that English composers of later generations are still using, but we can't really trace any Akagam in England, you know? Really? Who knows? <laughs> some, some 
transformative formative cosmos linking them together, but we don't have any hard evidence. Is that kind of? Well, and, uh, I mean, one of the problems is that so many English sources right. have been lost or destroyed. That yeah, what do you do with that? <laughs> so speaking of Ockham, then um, what what took you? Not again, not not that you as blue heron or you as a as a professional are like an exclusively Akagam person like that's not your exclusive like you just said but what then took the group towards focusing on Akagam because when I think of blue heron that's what I think of uh-huh. uh, because it's maybe it's just because it's been more recent but what what kind of shifted your gears in that direction it is it is more recent as a primary preoccupation and uh, we are now in the midst of a project to perform all of Akagem that yeah. survives. Um, uh, he's a composer also was right there f- with us from the very beginning. So in our first season, the fall program, October 99, was the Peterhouse repertoire. It was Hugh Aston and John Taverner, and we actually we did some Shepherds slightly later. Um, and then in the spring, March, I think it was 2000, we did a program uh, with Franco-Flemish music, and we did Akagem yeah. uh, on that. So he's yeah. been right there from the beginning at, with with this sort of notion that there was, is there a connection between the styles of the two? Right. As we've gone along, you know, we've always done the 15th century Franco-Flemish music as, as an important part of our concert performances, not recording until very recently. Sure. But as the Peterhouse project was as a recording project was wrapping up with a five, we recorded five discs and, and uh, then we won this gramophone award for the fifth disc. And then we put out a five CD set, which was a boxed set. That was sort of the idea all along. When we're, when we've got five, we'll put out a box set and then we can say we've really done a chunk of work here. Yeah. As that was winding down or, or getting towards its, not conclusion, but a, a, a plateau of sorts, uh, Akagam was beginning to rise up, but we thought we needed some, or I wanted a, a larger scale project that would help organize what we were doing for the next several seasons. And we were doing Akagam, and at one point we did an all Akagam concert, that sort of mixture of this and that and the other. And I remember sitting on stage listening to uh, them sing at uh, something at some point and thinking, you know, I just love this music. Yeah. I would like to do every note that this guy wrote before I die. Wow. And we can do this because it's not a vast amount of music. You know, there, there's basically a dozen masses, more or less, and there's only four motets. There's about 20 minutes of motet by Akigam, and there's about two dozen songs. Yeah. That's so you can you know you can conceive of doing all of that without committing yourself to it's not like I'm going to do all of Telemann or right Pascal you know or Machot where there's so much music that it it would be I mean this is doable yeah so we we started this project Akagem at 600 because his 600th birthday is it's right around now I mean we don't know exactly when right. Sir, 1420s, we don't know. <laughs> right. so we're around 600, um, and uh, that we would 
not record all of it, but perform all of it and record so, some of it. So right now we, um, we, we are, we've done nine programs out of 13. In 13 programs, we'll have done everything. Wow. Uh, we were about to do the 10th in May of this year, and then everything got canceled. So, and we've, we've put the whole pro project uh, on the shelf for this season because we're not, we're not doing any concerts in live, in person. Sure. And in fact, we're not doing anything with more than two singers or maximum three all season for, for uh, health reasons, safety reasons. And Ockingham is just, it's too hard to, to do uh, spaced out, you know, at a distance. Yeah. You just can't. It's so hard. Right. So temp we're waiting temporarily. So we have four programs more to do. So we'll be finishing a little later than we thought. But once we start doing live concerts, we'll do two programs a season for two more seasons. And then I think we're going to do a big Ockham festival of some, some really concentrated form. Oh, that'd be fantastic. And then meanwhile, we're, we're recording, we're going to record all of the songs. Yeah. There are about two dozen. So that's sort of two CDs and we've released the first uh, last fall. Yeah. That was um, fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. He's great. Yeah. He's just one of the best. Yeah. It's and we're going to record the, the motets coming up this next yeah. season when you can kind of get back. I, I forget it. everything sort of been disrupted. So the, our plans have all been postponed at least a year and we'll sort of see what happens. Right, right. Um, there's only four motets. We've already, we've performed all four of them already. Sure. So um, we're going to do his motets plus the complete motets of Johannes Regis, who's an almost exact contemporary of whom there are six surviving complete motets. Right, yeah, I don't know that composer. So oh. now I'm, I have this list of people you're saying that I'm going to go and research right after this. So so that's... Ray, Rages is great, great composer. Really, really. His, his, both, he, there are these, these, this handful of motets and just two masses and two songs, which are both, uh, one of which only has partial text. But the, the motets especially are something that I would recommend to choirs to, to undertake. They're yeah. hard, but the sonorities are wonderful, um, and they're very satisfying music. Yeah, there's something about that generation, uh, Franco-Flemish, and, and even, again, like even though we can't figure out why or how they're related, that same area era of English composers that, to me, I, I'm a pretty um, spiritual person, and there's something that sounds really holy about that music and otherworldly and even the secular music there's there's something i can't put my finger on why or exactly what it does but it's really special when i and whenever i listen to it and that's i think it's just so captivating so it's cool to hear that you had a similar experience just sitting on stage of just like being taken over by it of i just love it I, there's yeah. something about it that just resonates I, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I, I, I think that the, I mean, part of it is the, is the, the primacy of the voice in the repertoire because yeah. the voice has that ability to touch our hearts and, and to, and to communicate more than any other instrument, you know? Right. Um, and all the composers, virtually all the composers from this, from the period are singers were singers, right? So they have, 
a, or they have an intimate knowledge of the human voice. And I do think there's something about it, it that pre before systematic imitation, that generation or so before. Um, yeah, there is something very profound about the yeah. music, which the systematic imitation, it, it just, it regularizes it. Right. In a way which you know, makes it, it makes music a little easier to compose probably yeah. because there's a system, you know, before that, um, it's possible that you had to be a, a, a better composer in order to write anything at all. You know? Absolutely. <laughs> I think that's so profound because I'm teaching AP music theory right now and we're actually in the counterpoint unit studying like Palestrina counterpoint and my students are losing their minds. They're like, wait, why can't we do that? I was like, because he didn't do that. Like, <laughs> but but they're like, why do all of ours sound the same? I was like, because there's this very strict system and it, and it becomes formulaic and you can see how, so I can totally see how that would maybe be the case. And this more organic through composed kind of just stream of musical consciousness, maybe, uh, I don't know. I think that's definitely part of it. So it's not that it's not organized, right? You know. Right. But it's organized in ways which are less uh, perceivable at first hearing. Sure. And, and less just like, cool, well, I, I can just listen to that uh, recording and then just write out the form because, oh, here's that theme again, or here's this imitation again. It's just super, you're going to have to spend some time with it and dig deep, and, which I think is not a bad thing. At all. No, not at all. But it, yeah, so the music does not reveal its secrets yeah. very, very easily. I think with Akagem and, and other composers of his generation, but, you know, Akagem is a particular example, we don't, we don't really understand how his music works. Right. You know, I mean, I, and I, I say that as someone who's done a fair amount of it now, but feel in no way that I really understand what he's doing. But I do know that in a mass, for example, which, which has a long form, you know, this sort of long, irregular form, but they're organized over five movements. If he's, if we did set all five and, but, and the movements speak to each other, you know, they're, they're organized in ways that make a, a cycle yeah. Always there's a progression of musical thought and musical expression through the piece that means there's something amazing, transformative that, yeah. that happens toward the end. And he always does it. You know, I, I knew a something breathtaking happens and you just you you know, you you lose it. It's yeah. it, but it's so with him, it's very hard to see how that's happening. Yeah, I find technically, where with later composers, the same thing does happen. You can usually put your finger a little more easily on what. Oh, it's this harmonic thing, and now I maybe see in Akigen there's certain harmonic things that happen later in pieces. You know sure. that that feel there's you know there's often this kind of elegiac sense in the Agnus Dei. Right. Right. And how is that constructed? Well, you know, some of it is, some of it's 
technical. It's like, oh, subdominant harmonies. Right. <laughs> Mind blown. I mean, that's, that's a completely anachronistic term, but right. it, they also organize things harmonically in different, different harmonies on different degrees of the scale. Sure, right. An emotional effect. And I, I do feel like there are certain their continuities of, of emotional yeah. content of those harmonies across centuries. Yeah. Well, that, that really makes me think of, that's a really good point. And so how do you convey those things to an audience that are harder to find? What are some, like in a live concert versus a disc, like how do you convey, or how do you personally convey those difficult to, to find pieces? So the audience isn't just, you know, yeah, having it go over their heads. I, I well, I, I actually think the the keys are pretty simple. I mean, you, you there are first is to, um, you recognize that the music is is organized linearly, not harmonically, and so that has certain consequences about how you what kind of sound you're after and how you organize your ensemble. So. Mm-hmm. If, if line is primary, then it's an advantage if your individual singers don't sound the same. In other words, if they don't, the goal is not blend. The goal is to be able to hear each individual voice pursue the course of you know, that melody. Yeah, yeah. So, and those lines may peak or recede in, in, in at non simultaneously, right? And so, not to impose a sort of unanimous structure from on top, but actually just let the individual lines do their individual thing with distinct sounds. Yeah. So, I you know I don't. People sometimes ask me about what's my sound ideal and everything. It's like, I don't have one. Um, What I like to hear is each singer with, you know, his or her own voice, which is unique, singing, being themselves as much as possible. Yeah. And then, of course, they cooperate. They're they're listening to each other. They're talking to each other. They're singing. So they're making music, it's chamber music, but they're not trying to blend. They're right. trying to communicate individually. Yeah. And do you do that as you as you say that, is that with the idea that there's one person singing each part? Yeah, there's a very good question. Um so <laughs> this is something we don't have a definite answer for, of course. And yeah. there it's also pretty clear that there are um the the, the there are different answers at different times and that, and that different answers may be possible for any given piece. Sure. Uh, if you to, to take the two examples we've been talking about in England, these choirs in the beginning of the 16th century, they tended to be large-ish. Right. They have, they have both boys. It, we're talking, if we're talking about sort of standard cathedral or, right. or collegiate choirs, they have both boys and men. Yeah. Women and men can't sing together in church. So, right. uh, so there are either uh, women's ensembles, which are much less documented in England, sure. uh, 
or their male ensembles, which have boys singing the higher parts. Um, and they tend in England to have more than one person on a part. Uh, and we, we, we have very little documentation from any time in the 15th and 16th century about how any specific piece was performed. Right. Every now and again, we do know, and very, very little. And in England, there's some, there's some clues, I would say pretty strong suggestions that those ensembles were three, four, two, three, four people to a part. Got it. Uh, and not just on staff, but, you know, for a particular, for an actual polyphonic piece, a, a performance of a piece of polyphonic music. On the continent, again, it's, there's not a lot of direct evidence. Right, um, right. There are suggestions that when there are, and let's, again, we're just, let's talk about sacred ensembles of male voices. Sure. Not because they're primary, but simply because we have more documentation. Right. Um, uh, if there are boys involved, there might well be more than one on a part. Right. And those, they might sing with only one adult on each of the lower parts. Or there might be more people, or you know, b boys are not the only solution for the top in these ensembles. A, a, a adult male singing f in some sort of falsetto uh, technique is also yeah. possible, um, and those ensembles seem to often have been one to a part. Wow! Not, not inevitably, but but perhaps as a primary choice, and certainly. Uh, f for Akigam, for music that works like Akigam, where it's enormously complicated, it's v virtuosic, yeah. there's an enormous range of rhythmic values, and some of it's really ornate. It just works better one and yeah. apart. Um, it seems like one and apart music, you know, and in, in the same way, if you think about string quartet music, like right. a, a string quartet and a four part string symphony from the early or the late 18th or early 19th century, they work exactly the same, but right. they're not really right. There are. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's super interesting. And I would never have thought that all of what you just said is like mind blowing new information. And it, but as you were speaking, I was thinking of pieces of music that I've read, studied, heard, and it makes complete sense of why some of those, and e even comparing Akigam, like you said, to those English, uh, roughly roughly the same time period people, it I can totally hear three or four voices on a part in England and individual voices in on the continent. And that music does lend itself probably more ideally to those things. Um, because like like you said, the texture is so complex, even, even even if it's doable by two or three on a part, how do you think that that would, I mean, maybe this is a dumb question, but how do you think that would change the experience for the listener with the Akagam piece? Would it be detrimental or could you do it maybe? I don't know, what, what do you think? I think you definitely can do it. And I, I mean, since we're talking to a, a choral audience here, right. I would encourage people to do it and, and try sure. it, sure. Um, recognizing that how the music works 
it's useful to know that one and a part might be the ideal if there is such a thing. Got it. Okay, so, but you have three people. So first of all, again, this idea about blend, just forget about it. You know, what, what you need is each individual voice part to sound distinct. So if you have two or three people, you don't want them to homogenize their sounds to such an extent that they become just voice. You know, they, they, they still want to be, you know, Cameron, Kirsten. <laughs> right, right, Scott, whoever. Oh, Allie, you know, uh, you want to hear individual voices. And I think if the voices cooperate within a section of two or three or four, once you get to four, it begins to just automatically, the individualities begin to cancel each other out. But, right. but if you can maintain a distinction between the parts, at least, by letting people use their real voice and not go for some sort of platonic blended ideal. Yeah. And that's, and as from, from the singing technique perspective, I'm, I, I, I'm having a, in a couple of interviews with a, a great vocal pedagogue named Jamie Rhodes, who teaches at East Carolina university, but she, but so she, I have this voice pedagogy perspective that I have to like put my lens on. And she talks so much about singing with the right kind of voice. So there's this butting heads between voice teachers and choir directors a lot and her, she teaches both and she's trying to get rid of bridge the gap. And yeah. I think that this idea, not only maybe historically as in terms of historical accuracy, but just from a singing perspective, I think that that's really healthy and builds in an educational setting, builds independent musicianship um, yes. and is so valuable because then when you go back to doing the contemporary choral pieces with 30 or 40 singers and you're looking for that homogenous sound, you still have independent musicians. You don't have anybody straggling behind. So I actually think that from a lot of angles that sing your own voice, forget the blend. Like that sounds so like radical to choral directors of forget about blend for a second, but I really do think that it's a really valuable perspective to bring into any, whether it's an educational choir, a community choir, or a professional choir, yeah. because it builds that, okay, sing your healthiest tone. And singers like that. That's Singers just want to sing. Yes, exactly. And you know that if you, if you fight that, you're actually trying to destroy one of the things which is the most powerful and expressive about the human voice, which is that no two people sound the same. Right. You know, of course, no two violins sound exactly the same, but right. violin's violin, you know, in the hands of a different player, it will sound really different, but it's still a violin. But, yeah. and of course, two sopranos are still sopranos, but, but the tone quality and it can be so different and that's great you know because that's real individual humanity and yeah. that's what's powerful about singing you know i think it's i think it's crazy to try to get rid of that yeah in pursuit of as if blend were a, actually a musical positive instead of just a quality which you might want or not you know yeah. it, it's a it's 
it's a tool or it's a it's like red you know red is just red it can be great it cannot be useful if it's just a, it's something that you have it's a it's a something on, on your palate you know right yeah that too like it's like vibrato or or dynamics or vowel quality you know? right. and and i think that that's what dr andrew crane who teaches he's the head of choir at byu he used to work at east carolina with jamie rhodes and so they do this voice technique um interest session at acdas and music educators conferences and and that's what they talk about all the time. And so my paradigm shifted to that, like, sing your full voice, like yeah. good singing, but you can make it a clean sound so it's not muddy. You're not ruining harmonies. You're not ruining anything, but it's your voice singing full. And yeah. if, if I, I, so I completely agree with all of what you just said but it would have been like even more mind blowing, you know, four or five years ago, it would have been like, what are you saying? <laughs> but, and but I do, I think it's so profoundly true. I think so. And it, it, it's something, you know, this is, it, it's a battle that's it, perhaps in early music, it, it, you know, the problem's even more acute because yeah. well, people who do, I, I don't even hardly like to use the term anymore, but people like me who spend a lot of time doing older music Right. Uh, in ways which are historically aware, yeah, are often faced with a prejudice uh, about what kind of expression or sound we want or value. Right. Uh, and you know, I still, I just, I hear even really smart people, you know, say, "Oh well, this person, sh she'd be great for early music because her voice is small." It's like, okay, <laughs> what do you think they told people in 1475? You know, oh, your is big you can't be a singer you have to wait you know come back in 400 years i mean that's ridiculous <laughs> right it's ridiculous so true they had the same range of voices that we did Absolutely. and uh, you know but they didn't say oh you're an early music voice because there was no such thing right they Absolutely. weren't singing old music and they didn't have right. they didn't have later music obviously yeah, absolutely and i think a lot of it comes from that boy soprano aesthetic that yeah. we that we hear contemporarily but yeah. again, if you i if i'm with you and if you would have heard maybe a all-female ensemble from that time period there's no way they sound just like those boys absolutely not and so to to force female singers to duplicate the boy soprano sound i think is not only not enjoyable for them, but also there's this whole world of color and, and depth of expression that you're missing out on. Yeah. That the music then misses out on. Now, if you're doing it with boys, there's, there's no color gone because you, that's, that's the aesthetic you're going for. That's what you're getting. But to try to duplicate it with something that you're not, I think is a, yeah. it's, is a difficult thing. Now I don't, I don't, I know very, very little about about boys and, and children's voices in general. It's not something I've ever uh, done, but you know, I also suspect that what we think of as a boy soprano sound have these are very specific twentieth century kinds of trained boy soprano sounds and don't necessarily correspond with what's possible 
in the larger picture for children or yeah. what would have sounded like in the past, you know? Yeah. I mean, you can see, right? That if you hear an English choir or a German choir with boys, they do not sound the same. Oh yeah, so, completely different. I'm sure and, that there were differences then. And, and probably maybe a conversation for another day, but I'd be really interested as someone that you said you really love languages. I'd be really curious. And I haven't done any actual research, just theorizing in my head, but I ha highly suspect that language and dialect influences tone, color, in singing and aesthetic. And I, you know, <laughs> maybe on another podcast, I'd love to have you back, but we could talk about maybe some of those things of how does language influence how we sing? Certainly, yeah. I'm sure that that is correct. Yeah. Uh, and I, it's something about which I have, I, I would say, some more or less informed opinions more than... Sure. <laughs> I think someone who is educated, their opinions are probably a little bit more founded because they have more to go on. So I, I would love that um, uh, maybe on another day. So my last, this has been great. Um, my last question is if, if, if someone is, let's say a public school teacher or in a community choir that maybe has emerging voices and they're wanting to do something in the realm of early music, what are some resources, and they're, they're unsure, where would you point, what would you, what direction would you point them in to, to start? Where do you start? Yeah. Well, I would say just as a general introduction to what did a choir used to be, what 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 did voices used to how how was a vocal ensemble put together in the past? Yeah. There's a, a chapter by Andrew Parrott called A Brief Anatomy of Choirs. Ooh. And you can find that um in an uh, a book. There's a collection of essays about uh, choral singing that's edited by Andre de Quadros, Q-U-A-D-R-O-S. And that book is available, I think, uh, in ebook form. So it's quite e easily accessible. Um, and the chapter is also reprinted in Andrew's book, recent book, which is called Composer's Intentions, question mark. Which is a wonderful book. I recommend that to anyone uh, doing any any kind of early vocal music from Machaut um, Mass up through Bach, um, wow. and, and including Monteverdi. A lot of really good information in there. So this chapter by Andrews is a wonderful thing to read because he sort of outlines what how vocal ensembles were constituted in the past and how that differs from what we have now yeah. and I, I say that not to not to say okay if you're a director you should read this and then reconstitute your ensemble so that it matches the past right that would be that'd be a, a sort of professional historical performance approach we might want to do that although you might not you might sure. but if, but if you have a choir the the reason you want to know this information is so that you just you don't look at a four part piece of music and say oh it's a it you know it's written in 1500 SATB that's us SATB and then you get it you bring it to your SATB choir and the at the altos you you have women with lower voices singing altos and they're singing way below what they ought to and you know and the tenors are 
uh, you know, or or you you hand them this piece and it's kind of high. The sopranos, all your high sopranos are happy, and the basses are screaming. They never sing a note below C, tenor C, and they're up singing E's and F's. All it's like that can't be right. Right. It's not. Yeah. It, and there are reasons why, if you understand those reasons, then you might say, oh, we can rescore or we can shift. Why are the altos always doing that? Well, because an alto, as the name suggests, is not a low voice of a woman. Right. It's a high tenor. It's yeah. altus. So an alto in the Renaissance, is it's a tenor. Yeah. So if you want a, 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 a woman, you know, and they're normally mezzos who get assigned to those parts, honestly, yeah. they're going to be killing themselves at the bottom and the balance won't be right with the tenor part, which often is only a third different in range. Okay, so how do you deal with that? Well, you can mix men and women. You can, well, there are various solutions. Yeah. Why in these other situations, your sopranos have a piece where they're suddenly singing comfortable sort of modern soprano range the basses and tenors are killing themselves well it's because the piece is written in a in a system of clefts which in that period signaled a transposition downward of a fourth mm. which would put the basses back in a normal range and would put the sopranos back in early music soprano range which is right. usually not what we think of and it's going to give your altos their tenor parts back and they're not going <laughs> to so so, but okay, we have that information. We don't have to do this at what looks like written pitch at A440. Right. A440 is, it's a historical pitch, but not a majority one. And, right. you know, it's really only a standard in, from the mid 20th century. Right. It doesn't apply. It applies to almost no Renaissance. <laughs> right. So, don't do it at that pitch. Yeah, you don't have to, you know, figure out where you want to put it, and and yeah. for the ensemble that you have, yeah. don't feel attached to these um, divisions between parts. But you know, so so I you would read this. I, I the reason I recommend this Andrew Parrott chapter is it could free us from the idea that the ensemble we have is what they had, and therefore we can just do it right think of other ways what did they do if they had four people and they were going to sing this piece and and it didn't suit them at the supposed written pitch and we'll right. won't even get into historical pitch <laughs> right right they move it yeah they just put it where where it works for them yeah and i and i think to to kind of hit on that point i think that some of us fear being we want to be accurate there's yeah. musicologists who will come after us if we're not perfectly accurate. So they wrote this pitch. So that's accurate where those early musicians were just as practical as we are. It's like, I can't sing that high. What are we going to do? I, they're human. Yeah. Beings. Like their voices had the same more or less limits and capabilities that ours do. So they're going to find out practical solutions too. It's not that's this. Right. That's right. They're supremely practical. And if you, if you sense a practical gap between what your experience is and what you think it should be, it probably suggests that there's a mismatch somewhere. You, yeah. you, you haven't understood what the in pitch intended was or what the constitution of the ensemble was. 
Sure. And if you understand that, perhaps you're not going to, you don't, you might want to duplicate it yeah. and, and experience that, or you will take the principles with which they constitute their ensembles and apply those to your ensemble. And the principles are more like, no one should be screaming. It should be natural, you know? Right. Fit within your natural range. You should be able to sing the text clearly. You should be able to produce a sweet sound. Sweet, I mean, it's one of the, that's what they say. It's like us saying great, you know? It means right. zero. But it's that, you know, where it can, it just means, I like that. It's yeah, pleasant. <laughs> whatever like, that is. Yeah, exactly. Pleasant for, and that's, but that's the great thing is because there's, even in different air regions of our country, there's different choirs that have a different tone aesthetic. Some choirs like a really darker tone. Other choirs go for a brighter tone. Well, if that's sweet, uh, the sweet sound they say for, for you, then do it. Like there's yeah. no reason not to do that. Yeah. The other thing I would say is a sort of really important basic principle is to pay very careful attention to the words. Um, so their meaning, of course, right. um, but, uh, pronunciation and, and again, not trying to homogenize things, mm. you know, um, Latin American choirs tend to sing this, this invention called church Latin and right. it's sort of American church Latin, which means there's the number, the, the quality that. The, the number of vowels is reduced as far as possible, and they're all pretty vague. Um, whereas, it's not how language ever operated in the past. Sure. And, and that kind of Latin did not exist. That's not a, that's not a real language. Right. Um, when people in the 16th century looked at Latin, they just pronounced it like their, like their, their uh, language. Vernacular, right? So yeah. French Latin and Spanish Latin and Italian Latin, they all sounded different. Yeah, and um, and the, the quality of vowels is much more varied and specific, you know, and, yeah. and if you pursue that, you will again get a less homogenous, more textured, more articulated, more interesting, and more communicative sound. Yeah. And I think that's what, again, this is just something that, especially out here in the West, Western United States. I mean, you get to California and Seattle, kind of. But here, there's not much like early music presence. So we get this kind of, even myself, five years ago, we're at a concert, you're at a choral concert, you look at the program and you say, oh, well, there's the historical piece, that the token historical piece. And then, that's okay, part. that's nice, that's nice. Okay, let's get back to these contemporary or 20th century powerhouses. But, but I think the ideas you're talking about are ways that you really bring the music to life that make it not the dud of the P of the program, it is so much more colorful when you think of it that way. Yeah. yeah. That it really has grain and texture and ex every possible kind of expression and meaning. Yeah. That didn't get invented in the 19th century either. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And you think that's obvious, but we, I too get my mind that trap all the time. of like, wait a second, what am I doing? <laughs> so, well, those are great 
tips. Um, I would love to have you on again in like six months or something and, and just continue our conversation further. I've learned a lot in our conversation and I'm have a list. I have a list of things I'm going to go research and different things. I'm thinking about sound of ages and my high school choirs and how can I do this? I, I split my chamber choir at the high school up into quartets all the, every year and they'll rehearse one on a part all the time. And then That's I give them, and when they were ninth grade, I actually taught at the junior high for four years before I got here. Uh, and so they're all my same students that I've had since seventh grade, which is fun. But as ninth graders, I had them do one on a part Renaissance pieces for one concert. And that's all they did for that concert series. And I'd create learning tracks. And so we're used to that here and they, they love it. But some more ideas about singing your real voice is useful for them because I literally told them the opposite yesterday. So now I got to go fix it. (laughs) But because I think it's so profoundly true and important. So I, I really appreciate the, the things we've talked about and the, the wisdom nuggets, I guess, for lack of a better word, I'm not a professional in my vernacular. I talk slang like my teenager students do, but, (laughs) but I really appreciate it. So well, it's been a real pleasure, so I'd love to be back on, so anytime. For our composer profile today, we're going to talk about Johannes Ock again, in honor of the Blue Heron and Scott Metcalf. He was described by his contemporaries as the composer of the day. He was, and he was also clearly highly regarded by French royalty due to three employment positions that he was awarded. The first one is the premier chaplain, so it's the first chaplain singer of the royal chapel. That's a huge deal. He was also named the treasurer of the Abbey of St. Martin at Tours. These are terrible pronunciations. But I'm American, so I don't know how to speak Europe. Three, he was the master singer of the King's Chapel as well. So those three, that we don't know very much about Akagim's life. We don't know exactly when he was born, and we don't know very much about his upbringing, but those three positions tell us the prestige that he had. There was an Italian diplomat and mathematician named Cosimo Bartoli, uh, this quotes from him. He said, Akigem was almost the first in these times to rediscover music, which was almost entirely dead, just as Donatello rediscovered sculpture. So clearly he was the boss of his time period. And his mysterious lifestyle is kind of reflected in a little bit of mysterious nature in his works. Documentation on his life is really difficult to find and makes his music kind of somewhat tricky to analyze and really pin down to a specific style, per se. So it, like, reminds me of some of these, like, mysterious rock stars like Freddie Mercury and John Lennon. We know a lot now, but at the time it was... They were kind of a mystery. If I were to pick an easy piece... I think I'd have to pick none of them 
There's a couple of really distinct characteristics about Akagem's music and the music of some of his contemporaries that make his music particularly hard to perform. The first one is that they're really complex rhythmically and metrically. There's moments where it feels like you're in an asymmetrical meter or it feels like you're in a compound meter while another part feels like it's in a simple meter. Even though there were no bar lines, that was clearly on purpose and very deliberate. Which makes his music really interesting and colorful, but really difficult to keep together. Another thing that makes it hard is the modal nature of his harmonic language. As is typical of that time period, you know, you have this Dorian mode, or this Lydian mode, or this Aeolian mode, and then all of a sudden he's in something else. Mixolydian mode. Those are a lot harder on the ears for our contemporary Western classical music ears because we're so accustomed to hearing that leading tone and to and to hearing that fourth resolving down to the third. That tonality is just like ingrained in us. So that makes it tricky to hear. Another thing that makes it difficult is these long melismas where, you know, you're saying one syllable of text for like a page and a half. But then that's what I love about it, actually, is that then the music speaks for itself and really paints a really beautiful tapestry of line upon line. And you kind of hear the text really clearly because it happens so infrequently that you oh yeah, we just sang one word and a minute and a half passed and you get transported to another time. So if you can navigate your way through those three things, those three kind of difficult things between, again, the rhythmic and metrical complexity, the longer melismatic phrases and the modal sonorities, you can kind of solve any of Akigem's musical puzzles at once you've tackled that as a choir. So since I wouldn't really suggest an easy piece for an intermediate piece, it's relative again, so it's maybe more advanced intermediate. But I would say Alma Redemptoris Mater. The ranges aren't too extreme, but they could still be easily moved up a third or even a fourth if they're still out of range for the basses down there, and the sopranos, that doesn't send them to the rafters the whole time. There are moments when the meter in the individual lines turn into this asymmetrical feel, compound meter, and then back again to simple meters, and sometimes they're happening at the same time. And it just makes it kind of tricky to get together, but if you can really kind of enunciate those metrical differences, it really gives some life to the music, you know, emphasizing where the stronger beats would be in a given passage. And then when different parts are doing that at different times, all of a sudden you have this really colorful, complex, rhythmic texture. Another one I'd put in the intermediate category, if such a thing exists, is Ave Maria. It's pretty simple texture, a few complex like rhythmic moments, but it's totally doable. There are also, again, a couple of those instances where you expect a different pitch 
to happen than is actually happening on the page because of that modal sonority. Um, again, which just makes it a little bit tricky on the ears. Something you could put in a warm-up easily is the mode that the piece is in and kind of use that to help prep the singers. Then the ranges are narrower, uh, and it's totally achievable by an advanced high school, gr- high school group, I'd say. For his difficult piece, the range... I would say the gap between the intermediate piece and the difficult piece is not that big of a jump. So I would say that in terms of level of difficulty, it's all kind of relative, but I'd say in general, the mass settings tend to be a little bit more of a challenge because of their length and because of how they're constructed, and it would just take a lot of work. So you'd have to ask yourself the balance of work versus reward or investment and reward. You don't want to spend three weeks rehearsing a piece that's 30 seconds long. Um, you know, So you just have to ask yourself if those pieces are worth doing. But if they are, then they would be great additions to your program. And if they're not, then check out Blue Heron's recording of Johannes Ockegem Um, There's some fantastic recordings also by the Hilliard Ensemble um, and become familiar with Akagem's music. It really is kind of transcendental and holy sounding. Thanks for tuning in today. We had a good discussion about practicality and just going for it. Don't let little things stand in your way especially the idea that you're not educated enough to do early music. Just do it, because it's so great. And we had a really good interview with Scott Metcalf, the director of Blue Heron Renaissance Choir, and our composer profile on Johannes Akagem. Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to like and subscribe on all of our platforms, and we'll see you next time on Early Music Monday. <laughs>